Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I have this whole theory about horror, which is that it's a little bit like those really scary rides at amusement parks where you think you're going to die. The whole point is that when you're done, you can get off and you go, wow, I made it. And horror is a little bit like that, too. We're looking for that sweet spot where we're really, really scared, but we're not so scared that we can't make it all the way through and say, wow, I did it. I got through. I was really scared, but now I'm okay. There's something about that. There's like, for me, a quiet place worked very well that way. It was just scary enough that I could make it all the way through, but still be a little bit scared. Anyway, we'll talk about the psychology of horror. It's the season for it, right after this news. People who listen to this show know that, well, some people who listen to this show might know that I am not particularly comfortable with horror, and I particularly am not comfortable with things that have the so-called jump scare, so much so that people in my life have refused to go to movies with me that contain this. I was uh, with Bill Curry at one of one of these movies, 28 Days. Was that what it is, 28 Days? Whatever it's called. Anyway, I, I may have suppressed the title of it, but, but after a while, I had made so many little chicken-like peeping noises and been looking through little cracks in my fingers as though that was going to do any good that finally he looked at me and said, will you stop that? I will never go to one of these movies with you again, which actually is a promise he fulfilled. My son has done the same thing to me. But I'm really intrigued by horror, and I'm intrigued by why we like it so much, why other people like it more than I do. And there are certain horror movies that have stayed with me and have been able to teach me things about the way we think about life. So uh, joining us today, we're going to have a protracted conversation about horror with a whole bunch of different people. But to get things going is Matt Owen, a UK-based author of nonfiction. His piece, Our Age of Horror, a lengthy essay. In It's either it's a publication we cite all the time. It's either Aeon, Eon, or Ion. You, you pick A-E-O-N. It's a great publication. Combines philosophy, science, and culture in a way that I think nobody else really does. And so we should settle on a way to pronounce it, but we have haven't. Uh, also joining us is Tom Breen, a film critic and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus. We're going to have a little sort of generalized conversation about where we're at right now here in the age of horror. But Matt, you know, one thing that your essay taught me was there's a way in which we shortchange horror and it's sort of a genre. And you even are aware in the case of movies that there are actors and actresses who realize if they make too many horror films, they're going to get stuck at a certain tier. They're not going to get offered the Daniel Day-Lewis parts and the Reese Witherspoon parts because they will be understood to be in this implicitly slightly inferior artistic subgenre, which is sort of weird because, as you point out, horror is really about kind of the most basic human questions. It, it ought to be high art because it's asking, as you say, high art kinds of questions. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think horror, it's definitely one of those genres, which I think I say in the piece, it's 
and there, you know there are deep reasons for this which we can go into but it's i think it's by some distance the genre which has struggled the most for sort of critical respectability and this this kind of critical golden age which it seemed to be going through right now is you know compared to what other genres experience is still a kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of in terms of the actual um kind of critical acclaim it's getting and i what what i talk about in the piece is that i think that the thing about horror is it's a very kind of visceral genre it plays very directly to the body i mean you mentioned jump scares at the start there colin and i don't think you're you know when i was writing the piece a lot of my friends would kind of look at me with a bit of a bit of horror themselves at why why i would want to put myself through this trial of of watching and reading a lot of horror so i can so i can produce an essay on it and i do think in a way I mean, horror's roots are deep in our past as a as a, as a species and really the condition of being frightened and being jumped i mean everything about civilization is is developed so as to kind of cocoon and protect us from you know these sorts of settings where we are where we are kind of viscerally scared by things so you know i'm actually kind of perversely i'm kind of on your side colin i do think that aficionados like myself are are a bit of a strange breed you know we we do kind of crave the opposite of horror in in life generally so yeah it is it is it is a strange thing you know it's called the paradox of horror in the in the scholarship this 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 fact that we like it at all all right so let's let's get specific here i should say that a couple of years ago i interviewed I did a lengthy interview on stage in front of like 2,700 people with Stephen King. We had a really interesting conversation about horror that I was much more comfortable doing than I would be, for example, watching a movie like It, which I've managed to wimp out of watching like six or seven times here. They keep wanting to do shows about this. And so I didn't watch it for this conversation either. But now I've got two of you to talk among yourselves. So Tom Breen, horror often kind of comes at us through the eyes and sensibilities of children, you know, reading Matt's essay one might say, well, part of that is because children are maybe less good at sorting out what's, you know, what's a dangerous situation and what's not. Or maybe children are more tuned in to primal things that we learn to screen out. I don't know. I guess maybe, Tom, I'll just have you react as a critic to a movie like It. Yeah, you know, It hits a couple of cultural sweet spots right now in terms of where American cinema is going. It's certainly a nostalgic throwback to the 1980s, where we're seeing, you know, all of these reboots of very popular 80s and 90s material in in recent years. But I think that horror, I I loved what Matt had to say in his piece about horror playing up the vulnerability of children, the the lack of awareness of, of all of the kind of accumulated trauma of the world that adults have. Everywhere it happens, it's it's all connected by the sewers. And they all meet up at the... The well house. It's in the house on Ebel Street. You mean that creepy-ass house where all the junkies and hobos like to sleep? I hate that place. It always feels like it's watching me. That's where I saw it. It's where I saw the clown. That, that, that... That's where it lives. But I think that the best horror cinema, the most uh, beloved horror cinema, and certainly the most kind of critically respected horror cinema today is stuff that plays off of, you know, adults being spooked, spooked out of their minds, whether it's the the Babadook, this uh, 2014 Australian film about a, a mom who's kind of terrified that she's going to hurt her child, that she doesn't understand herself well enough 
to know that she, she won't hurt her child. His name is Mr. Babadook, and this is his book. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. ba 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 duk 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 That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. That is all predicated on the, the fear of, of adults being preyed upon things they don't understand, being forced to, to look in, both metaphorically and literally, with, you know, with all of the gore that is incumbent to the genre. There's, I think, a, a very long and rich history of adult fears being at the center of horror films that, you know, that today is as much a part of as, as any other time in, in movie history. But, you know, I'm, man, I do feel as though there's, I mean, maybe it's just that childhood is terrifying um, I, because I do feel I used to say that you could make the trailer for a horror movie. All you really needed was the kind of flat, affectless voice of a child slowly singing some childhood rhyme with a, like a squeaky playground swing in the background. So you have bye, baby bunting. Daddy's gone hunting. <laughs> you know, immediately everybody's terrified. And I assume it's because, you know, Matt, when I lie awake at night now, I worry that maybe the stock market is going to collapse. I'm going to lose a third of my 401k plan. Or maybe I'm worried about, you know, like I'm going <laughs> to need false teeth or something. But I'm not worried about what's in the closet. Uh, there's a way in which childhood just is terrifying. We haven't, I mean, there's, and there's a probably a reason why it is called. It and it follows is called it follows because there's a, a fear of that kind of it, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think I think in terms of being a kind of a horror consumer and someone someone who enjoys horror, everyone I know who really likes the genre, Tom. I wonder if this goes for you. That there's sort of something that happens with horror where um, Chris Rock has this joke that everyone everyone falls in love with the music that they were listening to when they when they first started to get laid. And I think horror. All horror fans have a have a real soft spot for the the horror that they they remember being terrified over the earliest point. So for me, that was R.L. Stein's Goosebumps novels and and a few other movies like that. And I think so. I think it kind of flips the other way as well. Everyone who really enjoys the genre remembers the first time as a kid when it had a special sort of horror as a as a child witness as as well as featuring. Um, child characters you, you know what i mean tom oh yeah and you know it's uh, it's funny that i'd say goosebumps were certainly one of my introductions to, to horror as you know as as a little kid but also the you know m night Shyamalan's movies like the sixth sense i see dead people dead people like in graves and coffins walking around like regular people they don't know they're dead the blair witch project certainly movies that Still scare me to think about today because of yeah. their imprint on me. But I, I would say my my love of horror. You know, it's funny. I was talking with I guess Colin a few weeks ago about my me being a formalist. My my love of like the form of cinema, and I think that the more that I think about the expressive visual capacity of movies and how that is really what draws me into movies as an art form as entertainment. Horror is kind of like the perfect encapsulation of the incredible breath like the incredible capacity that uh, movie makers can affect audiences through the way that they craft images. And again, that, that goes like way back to the beginning of, you know, of cinema. It's like, you know, one of the first art house or avant-garde movements with like German expressionist stuff. And at the end of the world, world war one and the early 1920s, 
with Nosferatu, kind of the first vampire film, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, all the way through David Cronenberg, David Lynch. I mean, the, some of the, the filmmakers who do the most interesting stuff with, with costume, with shadow, with light, with jagged angles, all this crazy stuff that just kind of seeps and sneaks under, under your eyes and into your brain. They're horror filmmakers, and I, I love that. And for a genre that, you know, sometimes dismissed as kind of um, body and lyric entertainment, I think it's great that these filmmakers have managed to uh, push the capacity of the art form while also getting me to hold my hands over my eyes for most, most movies. Right. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing about, about form and about genre because, yeah, Matt, particularly in the early stages of horror, and it may still happen, but I remember that there were movies that were accompanied by these completely fallacious warnings saying, you know, if you have a heart condition, go to, go to, you know, this movie may impose all kinds of stress on you. And these were actually, you know, not very well-veiled selling points by the people who were distributing the movie. But there was this sense also that maybe just the that the movie genre itself was so powerful that it could convey horror in, in a way that it hadn't been conveyed before, in the way that the, the Tom is talking about. I'm not sure I totally agree that that's the most powerful way. I mean, I think both of you guys started out on books really called Goosebumps. But, but Matt, maybe you could say, to sort of say a little bit more about the movie part of this anyway. But before the movie part, that it's, that's, it's a really good point, Colin. And that's always been a kind of fear with... You know, the kind of more refined classes, as it were, have, have always sort of been worried about horror. In the Victorian era, they were called these sensation novels and these penny dreadfuls, Sweeney Todd, these kind of uh, these kind of lurid accounts of crimes and violence, which, you know, completely outsold the Wordsworths and stuff of the era. And, and everyone was terrified that these these dreadful it was called the gothic then but these these things would would sort of corrupt the young you know horror's always been a source of it here where i am in the uk one of our biggest recent moral panics was this video nasty scandal in the 80s where it was a bit like violent video games where everyone worried that if you'd get teenage boys would, would watch some violent movies and they'd suddenly charge out into the streets and become serial killers themselves so yeah the the more as you go from from very very luridly written literary accounts to sort of increasingly visually striking cinematic versions the cultural fears about the the possibility of that sort of corrupting us morally that's definitely always been there and there's there's a kind of a disgust about about horror as a genre from often the kind of arbiters of cultural taste you know i think in music horror's equivalent is is metal music which has struggled with the same thing for you know for the decades it's been around it's it's seen as loud and nasty and it's going to turn people into animals if we don't try and police it somehow I have so many, so many things that I want to ask you guys about. But, I mean, one of the things that was, Tom, interesting to me about Matt's essay was, in a way, it explores this whole question that probably we've been telling horror stories to one another since, you know, the cognitive revolution between 70 and 30,000 years B.C. Once we were able to tell stories, we probably said, wow, you should see over there there's this horrible chasm and you fall into it and these these terrible things and it's really awful and just, just don't go there, you know, and those were actually probably kind of useful cautions, but they were also really scary. But our ability to tell a scary story is evolutionarily adaptive. But I wonder how much you as a critic also buy the question that horror movies often are about an 
anxiety that's tied to a particular moment. I was talking to my son last night about the movie Halloween, and we're going to do a whole conversation with Jason Zinneman later in the show about the movie Halloween. But my son made the point that Michael Myers appears on the scene at exactly the moment the United States has completed the deinstitutionalization of mental patients. That, you know, from 65 to about 77, we went from, you know, kind of full psychiatric hospitals with severely mentally ill people with to one-tenth of that number of people in any kind of state psychiatric institutions. They were all closed, and the other nine-tenths were out in the community in various ways. And I think you could take almost any movie, powerful, popular movie, and sort of say, wow, it's about this. It's about this thing that's happening right now. It's about Trump. It's about Tinder. It's about AIDS. It's about, you know, how much as a critic are you interested in that as opposed to the timelessness of it? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, is the because so much to both. I mean, I, I love that reading of Halloween. I think that Halloween, uh, a mo- a more recent movies like It Follows and Get Out are all also very much of a piece about the sterile and almost so sterile their their dangerous and corrupt nature of the suburbs in American life. That's kind of what I think of uh, sex in the suburbs, kind of what, what Halloween is all about to me in so many of these uh, kind of iconic you know, 1980s slasher films, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, and, and Halloween being set in these in you know very much kind of racially segregated upper middle class white suburbs or summer camps where the you know this repressed this id, this all of the the kind of violence that against all of the different people in American history required for this one specific class to to get to this position of class comfort seems to be be rearing its its ugly head and and ripping itself out kind of from from the inside outward. So I, I think that really the one of the great things about horror as a genre. Maybe, again, Night of the Living Dead by George Romero being maybe my favorite example of this type of horror. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! It can very directly grapple with the most kind of pressing social issues at the time. Again, Night of the Living Dead, set in 1968, uh, kind of a sole black truck driver played by Dwayne Jones fighting off this army of kind of mindless, never-stopping zombies that are, that just kind of keep flowing wave upon wave upon the house that he's locked in until finally, spoiler, he's, he's killed because someone thinks that he's a zombie. These are, you know, movies that can be read as as direct commentaries on American race relations, on uh, the American just revulsion with sex and the incredible guilt around sex, especially teenage sex and all the slasher movies. But it also gets at, and I think Matt very astutely points this out in his piece, it gets at the most universal elemental fears that we all experience. Most importantly, fear of death, but also grief, you know, the loss of a loved one. You know, Matt talks about uh, horror as a genre rising in the age of kind of after the death of God, you know, with, with kind of confusion about a meaninglessness in the world. I think that all of these kind of more existential angsty stuff makes its way into horror, too. But it can be both. That's the great thing about culture. It's always both. Well, we, I want to talk to you, too, Matt, about 
Okay, I'll do my tired Exorcist thing, but I'll do it fast. So, you know, when the, when the movie The Exorcist came out, one of the things I, I was aware of right away, I just read a book by Philip Reef called The Thir- Triumph of the, uh, the Therapeutic, where he talked about how sort of the therapeutic model had replaced Judeo-Christian values as a way of, is the primary way we understood one another and understood ourselves. And to me, that's very much what The Exorcist was about, was that, you know, Ellen Burstyn or whoever the woman is in the book, she doesn't understand what's happening. So she thinks all these good therapies, you know, spinal taps and, and neurology and hypnosis and psychotherapy are going to help. And really what she's got in her hands is a religious problem. And really, when you watch the movie, the movie stops being scary to me when the two priests show up, because it's like they're the Navy SEALs. They train for this stuff. They know who they're dealing with. You know, they're not going to make it. But, you know, that's like this is their gig. And they're certainly not under any illusions about what's happening. But maybe, you can, you know, in your essay, you talk about the way in which horror and religion interact. Maybe you can sort of give us your take on this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to sound like one's, ma- you know, one is making sort of sweeping generalizations. But 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 I really do think that horror is sort of our our purest enlightenment genre, if you like. It, it doesn't exist. It's, it's been around forever, right? It's in, it's in cave paintings and every folklore tradition that we know of. But it doesn't exist and as a sort of identifiable genre, unlike tragedy or, or, or comedy or, or all these kind of much older, the sorts of genres that, you know, the Greeks formalized. Because until a couple of hundred years ago, it's just fully folded into religion. All, all the most horrific stories pre about 1750 they're all in religious texts i mean i mean obviously from sort of our cultural judeo-christian western worldview the book of revelation is pure horror hinduism is full of strange vicious deities even like cuddly old buddhism that that everyone everyone loves these days you know it has its visions of the of the apocalypse as well so so horror sort of deep history is is basically is sort of fundamentally pre-scientific as i put it in the in the essay and 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 what so what you get now is this weird double effect or on the one hand horror is by so far the genre where religious fears and motifs and this sort of thing are best preserved i mean with, with no other genre are you as likely to encounter exorcisms or like you said colin or or, or you know demons or curses or various kind of pseudosciences or anything like this that you just don't see these things when you go to a spy thriller or a rom-com or, or or even fantasy and these things are you know they survive alive and well in in plenty of horror but at the same time in horror it's also the genre i would argue where you get the kind of coldest and the most seriously developed sorts of atheism so the grandee of horror writing in kind of anglo-american literature is hp lovecraft of course and he had this whole philosophy he called cosmic indifferentism basically just that the universe doesn't care at all and this runs right through horror at the fountainhead of horror cinema you have the exorcist which of course peter blatty who wrote the novel i mean he wrote that to try and push people back to the church he was a devout catholic and then in the same decade you have a movie like alien i say that we abandon the ship we get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here we take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up the shuttle won't take four where humanity is embodied as alone in this cold, vast universe at the mercy of another another species. And Michael Myers in Halloween, I would say as well, he's kind of this implacable 
force um this kind of pure almost naturalistic evil so yeah yeah that, all of it all of which is a long-winded way to say I, I think i think horror is 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 a deeply sort of religious and post-religious genre and you, you see that everywhere hereditary this year is about demonology even at the same time as something like get out is just completely uninterested in in theology that's um runs right through the genre i mean it, it does seem though tom that one of the other strains so there, there are always going to be the kinds of movies that matt just described where the trouble is coming from the other side, from the supernatural side, from the dark side, you know, from the demon side, and it's coming to get us. But I think there are also quite a few movies, and you might even throw Get Out in there somehow, where movies and television these days, where we're sort of saying, well, no, you know, the real problem is actually other people. <laughs> There's a way in which our inability to get along might be this one of the scarier things. I don't know. I'll let you, Tom, as a critic, react to that. I mean, I think every truly kind of bone chilling horror film has to rely a little bit on something as universally understandable as like the breakdown in interpersonal connections. I mean, even whether the terror is coming from another part of this world, another realm or something like that, or or whether if it's our own kind, uh, the meat of the movie, as it were, I think almost always rests upon the inability. Again, Matt makes a great point in his article, the kind of inability of, of people to make kind of honest, simple, smart, rational decisions when presented with, you know, whether or not to open that, like, closed, you know, basement door or not. There, there are plenty of great examples of people doing a lot of harm to themselves and, and audiences being scared uh, from the results. Right. Well, also, who's more scary in the second Aliens movie, the alien or Paul Reiser as the Weasley <laughs> corporate guy who's misleading everybody about what's happening? We're going to just stop there. We really do encourage people to read Matt Owen's a terrific piece. Uh, I believe you're MMO in there, right? When uh, As a byline. Uh, yeah, that's my authorial, my regal authorial name. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's in A-E-O-N. I'm not even going to try to say it. <laughs> Our Age of Horror. It's a terrific piece. Thanks for joining us by Skype. Tom Breen is regularly on the nose with us. He's a film critic and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to a critic who wound up with a very unusual assignment. When I think about the New York Times in 1978, I'm about to sort of date my own fossil, um, or so what a fossil I am. When I think about the New York Times in 1978, I was actually in Rome covering a papal conclave, and the paper was on strike. And so their religion editor, who I think was named Kenneth Briggs, would just walk around Rome staring into space and looking very melancholy because the election of a pope was just not going to get covered by the New York Times because of a newspaper strike. Well, it turns out there was at least one other important thing that was happening at that time. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. 
Yes, that's right. Donald Trump's pediatrician was giving interviews. No, just kidding. Well, joining us right now is Jason Zinneman, who does, in fact, write the Assuming That Was Comedy on Comedy column for The New York Times. And he's the author of, among other things, Shock Value, how a few eccentric outsiders gave us nightmares, conquered Hollywood, and invented modern horror. So, Jason, this is all a big, long on-ramp for you to explain how it is that you came to be reviewing a particular, not very new movie in The New York Times. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is this has got to be the strangest assignment I've received in many many years. Yeah, I got a email from my editor saying that the Times had never reviewed the original Halloween, which you know is one of the most influential movies ever made. Really, I mean, certainly one of the most influential horror films. And my first thought was that this must have happened because the New York Times sort of thought Halloween beneath it. But that turned out to be not the case that there was this newspaper strike and that they never, there was never an official New York Times review. So they asked me to do the kind of the official New York Times review, which is a, for someone like myself who's a huge horror nut and who wrote a book about horror films in the 70s that wrote a lot about Halloween. That's an offer I couldn't refuse. At the same time, it's a tricky assignment because how do you review a movie that came out 40 years ago and that has been imitated and copied and paid homage to so many times, you know, do, what do you, do you, do you give a plot synopsis of it? Do you, do you introduce it, you know, to this character, Myers, Myers is, I mean, do you, do you pretend like the last 40 years didn't happen? Uh, it was a strange assignment, but yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it, was a, it was, it was fun and it was, a, I got a huge amount of feedback for it. I think people, I think just the story of the fact that we're kind of fixing this omission was it was, was a big one. By the way, we also missed Attack of the Code Tomatoes, which came out around the same time. <laughs> which might have been beneath the New York Times' notice. It's hard, <laughs> it's hard to tell. So we should say, if you haven't seen the movie Halloween and you haven't read Jason's review, that he does give away pretty much the ending. So, And then the only reason I mention this is because I got like really yelled at by a listener about a year ago for giving away the ending of Easy Rider. So there's like always somebody who hasn't seen the movie. And so they, and they apparently don't feel like it's, that's their problem. So one of the things you had to do really was kind of mentally place yourself. I don't know how old you are, but mentally place yourself in 1978. So maybe just start with that. I mean, how did you did you try to kind of twist yourself around to see the movie with fresh eyes and 1978 eyes? I think the devil's eyes, the blackest eyes, you might say. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I actually, as it happened, I was three years old when Halloween came out, but as, as it happened, I got to the time with very little time in advance, maybe like a few days to write it. And Halloween, the original Halloween, was playing in Times Square the, the next day mm-hmm. uh, for one night, which tells you something about the, 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 the power of this movie, that, that it, it, you know, it, it's still playing to a completely packed audience in a Times Square theater who were screaming and gasping. So I, I, you know, I went back and I, I went to see it on a big screen, and I tried to put myself, I tried to kind of like erase my mind of anything in the past. So I, I, saw, I, I saw it on that level and I tried to write about it to some degree on that level. But at the same time, I thought it's sort of a disservice to write with this sort of complete naivete, this willful naivete about the role of this movie. You know, it's had such an impact that I, I tried to kind of do two things at once. So I tried to just review the movie as is 
And then I tried to also give you a sense of the kind of debates that have swirled around the movie and how it's been interpreted over the years. So I think my, my first line, my first line is definitely the first prism, which, which is that, you know, in a weird way, Halloween is a very experimental, oddball movie. People think of it as this kind of exploitation movie, this sort of lowbrow thriller that was made quickly and basically commercially exploiting violence and sex and all this. But actually, and because that its tropes, including the shaky camera point of view and killing people who have sex, uh, have been copied so many times a bit that it seems very hack. But, but actually, the character of Michael Myers was really a radical kind of figure. I mean, it, it was a character with no motivation, with no distinguishing details, with you know, everything from the costume to the way he walked telegraphed that this was it wasn't a character but sort of an absence of a character an abstract figure in the middle of this very realistic uh, almost mundanely so world suburban world i was reading your review and i started thinking about it and one of the things that you you say in the review is that you know often you look at a horror movie and you think what anxiety of the moment when what sort of temporal anxiety of the moment does this tap into so amityville horror was made right around the time people started using houses as, as investments instead of homes stuff like that and you said well maybe maybe there isn't one for this although i think what is michael well he's a guy with no freudian insider life what's he doing visiting judgment upon the women who the Judeo-Christian moralistic system of the past would regard as sinful, you know? So uh, to me, it might be about the anxieties of, well, we don't really have that old system anymore, or do we? You put your finger on the best counter-argument to my point that there's there's no sort of obvious subtext uh, or topical subtext that the the kind of, and I address it in the piece, that there has been probably the most commentary is sort of this feminist critique of Halloween and then a kind of response, feminist response to that feminist critique of it. You know, Carpenter, for what it's worth, has always denied having a point of sort of death-following sex, let alone killing the promiscuous. He, he has always denied that ever being a purpose of it. And I have a tendency, you know, people always sort of assume that was ridiculous. And I do think he was, to some degree, just following certain kind of genre conventions because th- these were not crimes of passion and they're all of the subsequent slasher movies like by the 13th that kind of moralistic subject is much more overt i think in some ways and you know the exorcist you could come up with a lot of other meaning subtextual meanings for the exorcist you know it's sort of a about the generation gap parents understanding their kids this go there's all sorts of things in a way by Halloween having so little political or social overlay to it. I mean, mm-hmm. it really doesn't. You know, it's just my, Michael Myers kills babysitters, and babysitters talk about boys and sex. You know, that, that's the entire thing. <laughs> There's no reference to Vietnam or gas prices or anything. There are some mentions. You look at things like The Exorcist or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the other horror movies at the time, or certainly any of the Wes Craven movies. There's much more overt politics. I think the fact that Halloween was so simple allows for all kinds of readings. So it's not to say that it's not a, it doesn't lend, there aren't intellectual explanations for it. I mean, you could also, you know, really drill down on the concept of evil, which Mm -hmm. Halloween is about. You know, it has a point of view about evil. But for the most part, I think more than any other great horror film of that era, it is a bare bones, almost fairy tale like story, which is part of the reason it doesn't date. You know, it really seems 
as it works as well today as it did in 1978. Well, I was going to ask you that. Do you think if this movie were released pretty much as is? Now, we should say that right now there is sort of perhaps the Halloween to end all Halloweens. Perhaps not. But Jamie Curtis, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is back in a new version of, of Halloween, kind of at her current age. But if this original Halloween were released, dropped into the market today without much tweaking, would it work? Would it work the way that it did before? Does, is, does it have that kind of purity to it? No question about it. Yeah. No question. I, I mean, I really, I, I really believe that. I mean, I, I, you know, I've seen it. As I, said, I just saw it with an audience not, you know, two weeks ago. I assume some of those people knew the movie, but they screamed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is one, that one thing about horror is that it is harder to fake it. I mean, the main reason is that just the, the virtuosity of the, of the filmmaking. It's also that Halloween, despite the way its imitators, does, has a fairly low body count. Mm-hmm. and doesn't have many jump scares, right. which really are the two cheapest things you can do to goose an audience. I thought that was a great point in your review, that the, there's a stillness thing that is actually scarier in some way than the jump scares. Horror has kind of come back around to Halloween. I mean, it's I think right now very much in vogue are these quiet, slow-paced building of dread. But really, there's it's remarkable when you watch the movie that this guy is not jumping out of nowhere. Right. He's always sort of lurking in the corner of the screen. There might even be a horror movie out right now that has quiet in the title, even. Yeah, so you're right. Yeah. No, for sure. For yeah. sure. There's a, and there's, there's a, another horror movie, Don't Breathe, mm-hmm. where there's a blind man stalking victims in a house, so everyone's got to be quiet. So there's, that's two movies, That and A Quiet Place, where essentially it's about people who have to be quiet to survive and or facing these unstoppable killers. And that, you know, the Jamie Lee Curtis in the closet w- waiting for Michael Myers to come upstairs is a great example of that. And then you have this, you know, you should, the music also is, if that was a pinpoint, you know, if you had asked me sort of 10 years ago, what's the most influential thing about Halloween, I probably would have said the opening shaky camera from the killer's point of view, which has been imitated by not only movies, but, you know, political campaign commercials. Hillary Clinton used this device um, in, a, in her first campaign against Obama. But now I would say the most influential element is the music. So many movies today use that Carpenter influence synthesizer repetitive beat. It's it's just it's just ubiquitous. It is so integral to the vocabulary of horror that when, once you hear anything that's remotely like it, you start getting scared. Right. You just made Jonathan uh, McNichol, the man who booked you, very happy by talking about that music. All right. Jason Zinneman, who writes the On Comedy column for the New York Times. That's the context in which we usually have him, but he's the author of, among other things, Shock Value, How a Few Eccentric Outsiders Gave Us Nightmares, Conquered Hollywood, and Invented Modern Horror. He just reviewed the first full, legit review for the New York Times of the 1978 classic Halloween. Thanks for being with us, Jason. It's great being here as always. So usually uh, Kion Wolf comes on and does the credits and the thank yous here. She was just too terrified by this whole show. She's uh, lying down in the nurse's office right now. So I would, like to, I would like to say that the entire show really was produced by the horrible house of Dr. McPants, uh, Jonathan McNichol. And uh, Amanda Fish was too scared to help out with this show. The part of Bill Curry was played by Donald Pleasance. And we're going to be back on Monday. We're actually going to do a show. You think this is scary. We're going to do a show about polling science and opinion research as the election draws near. 
here. This is uh, stuff that really, you know, John Carpenter couldn't dream up if he tried. Right now, we want to talk about what is really obviously the the most fertile ground these days for genre innovation, and that would be the podcast genre. I mean, people want to try a lot of things. The genre itself has a certain kind of elasticity that allows you to try certain things. So Aaron Mark is joining us. He's a playwright uh, and the creator, writer, and director of Gimlet's new scripted fiction podcast, The Horror of Dolores Roach, uh, which came out last week. Uh, We should probably just hear a little clip here from uh, episode one. Hey, Luis. Yeah. Did your dad... Did your dad die in this room? Yeah. Yep, he did. Does that bother you? No. It was peaceful in his sleep. It don't bother me. It don't bother me. I was just wondering. Okay. Well, if you need anything... I know. Thanks, man. Seriously. I owe you. You don't owe me nothing. The bathroom's pretty small. There's no tub, just one of those corner showers. And there's clean towels under the sink. So I take a shower. Alone. With the door locked. Stoned. For the first time in 16 years. I'm in there for like an hour, just soaking in that hot water. And the sun's still up, but I get all curled up in that little bed with the green sheet. Clean, cozy, feeling sort of safe. And think about Luis's dad dying in this room, peacefully. Of course, I had no idea right then how many more people were about to die in this room. Maybe not so peacefully. So, Aaron Mark, one of the things that jumped out at me the minute I started listening to this podcast, get out uh, notwithstanding. For the most yeah. part, we're talking about, you know, people who say, avocado, come in here and see what I've created. Or people yeah. in, 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 you know, Transylvanian castles. Or I mean, it's sort of like a lot of white people who buy old houses. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. don't really hear voices like this one. You don't hear Washington Heights or Harlem in, in horror that much. Was that, maybe just talk a little bit about that. Was that a sort of con- thing you were contemplating and working with. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Washington Heights. I've, I've been living here for going on 10 years now. And the, the piece started as a contemporary Sweeney Todd reinvention, which was really the seed of it. And I wanted to do a version of that legend that I hadn't seen before. And Daphne Ruben Vega, the actress who plays Dolores in the podcast and, and played her in the play originally, is somebody whose work I have known for years and years and years and really wanted to work with and was really excited by the idea of her being the one at the center of a story like that. I hadn't seen that done, which seems sort of ridiculous to me. And so it just seems sort of natural from there that the show would be populated by these very, very diverse voices and, and would reflect what parts of New York City really do look and sound like now. Right. And I think, you know, some of the psychology of horror and one of the reasons that horror is often as white as it is, is yeah. because it, it's it's predicated on the notion of our vicariously experiencing the fear and menace and precariousness of another person's situation. And one of the things we've been very good at doing in America for hundreds of years is thinking of people of color as them. They've got their own problems. Yes. Their problems aren't my problems. They, you know, they're stuck with their own problems. So one of the challenges is to whatever 
whatever extent you're interested in getting white people to, to pay attention to this is to get them to care about people who aren't like them, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. The, the whole thing is it's an exchange of empathy and it's an exchange of identification. And it's really important that she's the character we identify. She's the point of view. And so uh, let's talk a little bit of the medium itself. Podcasts are yeah. so interesting. I mean, uh, there are a lot of things that they do uh, extraordinarily well. I think as I've thought more about this show, it struck me that you can scare somebody in almost any medium. I, I I couldn't even get all the way through the book, The Passage by Justin Cronin. I was so scared that I had to give up. And there's a new Julia Roberts television version coming out. I know it's yeah. not going to be as scary as the book. But, but you know, you can scare somebody any any old way, really. You just have to be smart about it. So what do you bring? What are the tools you bring into a podcast? Oh my God, that's a great question. I mean, something I really love about audio when talking about horror is that the listener has to participate. The listener creates the images themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think this was something when we did the play, because the play doesn't, it's a monologue play, it's like telling a story around a campfire. We never visually, literally depicted the horrific events that were happening. So the audience had to create those images themselves. And the experience was very, very personal and very private and very intimate. And it made perfect sense and was really exciting to me then in bringing it to audio and fleshing it out that way that we could lean into that, particularly with a story that has a lot to do with secrets and isolation and hiding, that it becomes this very, very intimate experience with this person who's sometimes literally whispering in your ear. So anything that's scaring the listener is coming from their own brain. I also think that there's probably a challenge for you as a director and for them as actors. Mm. Having I've worked in radio for a really long time, and it's really interesting how hard it is to lie on radio. If I say I'm feeling great and I'm not feeling great, it's been it's yeah. amazing how well the audience w will see through that. You can send false clues out a, a little bit more easily if you're mixing in visual clues or, or, or whatever. And I, as you're directing these actors and as they're struggling with this, I mean, I wonder if that came up at all, that, that notion that, wow, there's some way in which you've got to seem really real if you're going to get the emotions you want from people. For sure. It's just a concentrated medium. And, and you're right, you can't lie to it. And, you know, certainly coming from the theater and having done it on stage, there was a lot of sort of tonally having to dial it back. Very quickly, we realized less is more. Mm -hmm. And with these actors, I mean, not for nothing. The cast is Yeah, you got a great ridiculous. cast. Yeah. And that goes a long way. When you have people like certainly like Daphne, like Bobby Cannavale, like Michael Yuri, all of these amazing people, to be able to say to them, you really don't have to do that much. You really just have to sort of be, and your presence, just saying the words, interacting with Daphne, is more than enough. Right. You got John Douglas Thompson. There's a whole theory that John Douglas oh Thompson God. is the greatest living actor. And was, by the way, I mean, it was like a master class in acting. You know, he came in for like two or three hours. We had these people in, in short little bursts, and one after another, I mean, I had to pinch myself just being in the room with these brilliant people. Now, obviously, they want a chance to work for, with Aaron and Mark, but is there also a way in which, are they attracted to, to this? This is kind of a new frontier for actors, too. Radio acting used to be just a given, but it hasn't been a given for a really long time. Is it exciting for them to see if they, they can kind of do this thing they're not used to doing? I think so. I certainly hope so. I think, you know, there's a curiosity factor at the moment. Like, oh, a podcast, a scripted podcast, and it's based on a play, and it's horror, and, you know, okay, sure, why not? And certainly having Daphne such a part of it from the beginning at the center, I think that excited a lot of actors as well. Being asked to just come in for a couple hours and, and play with Daphne and, you know, let's throw spaghetti against the wall and see what happens. 
And then I think maybe for some of them, it was maybe a little bit of a surprise to get there and realize, oh, this actually is something that actors used to do regularly. This is a medium that isn't new. We're, we're, you know, we're treating it like it's this new thing, scripted podcast. But the, the form, even with horror, of you know, telling stories in audio form is quite old. And that's kind of a subspecialty for you in a way, and because you have worked extensively as a theatrical director of horror. Again, I think you've got people coming to that going, well, that's not where you see horror. Horror is in movies. Horror is yeah. on television. Horror doesn't happen in theaters. Of course, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, it like almost only happened in theaters, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. And my, you know, my big sort of personal and creative preoccupation is the Grand Guignol, the infamous French theater of horror, which is, which is, you know, before the horror film as an entity, that's where people went. And that sort of went away. And I became fascinated by, in the theater specifically, why horror became so hard to do. Why did it become so hard to scare people legitimately, viscerally in the theater? And just for me personally, and, and, and my work, the answer to that became to, as I was saying before, to put it in the audience members' minds. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to depict blood and gore on stage, it was about an emotional identification, a really intimate experience with a character who we identify with. And then we fill in the rest. And that's what's scary because it's personal. Well, there's also, I would I would think, I don't have a lot of experience with theatrical horror, but there's a way in which, like, if I don't like what's going on in the horror of Dolores Roach, if I get scared or whatever, I'll just take my earbuds out, you know, and I'll hit stop on the phone and I'm yeah. done. Whereas if I'm sitting, you know, in the middle of row L, you know, right. at some Aaron Mark thing and I start getting scared, I don't really have too many moves I can make, right? <laughs> yeah, that's Yes, that's true. Yeah, you got you got people trapped, which is a fun thing to to be able to play into that we don't have in in the series. And you know that was certainly something that we all had to to work on, and something that the whole team was really good about guiding me. Uh, how shall I say? Not getting too far into that drip 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 drip, and to remind me, who's used to having an audience, you know, literally trapped there that we have to remember people can turn this off. We want people to keep listening. Right. So it's that dance between the kind of slow burn and also the fact that, as you said, you can take your earbuds out at any point, and we want people to be engaged, actually. Right. I have to go back to that theatrical situation because I'm fascinated by this, Aaron. That Okay, so when I go to a movie, I never talk in movies, except that if I'm really scared in a movie, I might start looking through my fingers. That's not a particularly helpful strategy. It doesn't really keep anything out. I don't know why I right. do it. And I might make these unfortunate little bird-like noises because I'm just so afraid. And I'm just wondering, in a theater situation, have you had audiences that just like couldn't handle it and, and just did things that was kind of were disturbing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's pretty fascinating watching how people react. I mean, my favorite reaction with the monologue plays is when people cover their eyes <laughs> as if there's anything to look at right. that they're shielding themselves from. It's just it's this reflexive reaction that, that people have to cover their eyes. But we have, I did a play last, fall, you know, we had a people, a couple of people climbing out of rows to, to <laughs> get out of the building. We had people, you know, react viscerally, shall I say, yeah. 
And it happens. I mean, the other very common response in the theater is just wildly inappropriate laughter yeah. in various moments. Well, that can happen almost anywhere. But I in, love the idea that be- every day. Yeah, I love the people climbing. That's just like I, I was hoping that that was the case. Well, this is terrific, and I really encourage people. I mean, first of all, I encourage people to experiment with podcasts in any way that they can think of. There's so much stuff out there. You're going to find something. But in particular, if you like what we're talking about right now and you want to check this out, we've been talking to Aaron Mark. He's a playwright, creator, a director director of Gimlet's new scripted fiction podcast, The Horror of Dolores Roach. You can get really scared while listening on your Bluetooth speaker while you're making your dinner, and then you'll probably slice your own finger, and the whole thing will go downhill from there. But uh, Aaron, uh, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Hi, 